Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. What's up, Transit Church? Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in the sixth chapter, finishing our series in the Lord's Prayer today. We're going to begin reading at verse 9, this model prayer that Jesus gave us as he's teaching his disciples and, by extension, us to pray. We'll pray these words together this morning as we begin. Verse 9, Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 9. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And amen. So we've been saying throughout this this series that we've been doing on prayer, everyday prayer. It's one thing to say the words of the Lord's Prayer that most of us in the room are familiar with. It's a completely different thing to actually know what the words mean and to use them in how we formulate our prayers, our everyday prayers. And that really is what we've been doing for the last two months. We've been unpacking this prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples kind of line by line in hopes that prayer will become more accessible and inviting to us and that we would want to pray more. And I think that really is the, the overarching goal that I've had for myself, that, that we would know that we're invited to pray, that we would have the opportunity to pray, but on top of all that, that we would just want to pray more, that we would know that God is welcoming us to pray um, as Jesus taught us to pray. And so we've talked about several ways to view the Lord's Prayer in the model of praying that Jesus shows us. And the first way that I brought out was the orientation of our prayers. We see we're invited to pray firstly vertically. In fact, Jesus uh, tells us that we can enter our prayer saying, Father. Now, there's a psalm that says, you are God in heaven and we are here on earth and we should let our words be few. And the connotation there is God is, I mean, the God of the cosmos. He's supreme. He's majestic. And you, there's nothing that we can say that's going to appease him. At the same time, Jesus is saying in prayer, obviously because of the gospel, we have the opportunity and we are being invited to call God, not just God, but Father, and of course, the Jesus would, uh, the the disciples wouldn't have prayed that way. The New Testament uh, religious leaders wouldn't have prayed that way. The Old Testament saints would not have prayed that way. Only because of Jesus are we being invited to pray that way. And the way we're being invited to pray is as a, a you know as an intimate uh, person related to Jesus. Uh, the Aramaic word is the word Abba. Uh, it's like a little child. Uh, reaching up his arms and asking to be picked up by his papa. That's the way that we can approach God in prayer. And then the, the specific vertical orientation of the prayer is, is your name be hallowed, your kingdom, your will, which at the beginning of this prayer, orient vertically reminds us that ultimately this isn't about us. All of life, everything that happens, it's not about us. It's really about God, even our prayers. But then there's a second orientation to this uh, prayers that he just teaches us. We're invited to turn our prayers horizontally. And these are the words that we're taught that we can pray. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us of our sins. Lead us. Deliver us from temptation and evil, which succinctly just says that God cares about us. But here's a, that's the first way. And so here's a second way that we can see our prayers as well. The Lord's Prayer is teaching us something about God. It's teaching us also about our relationship to him. So when we pray, Father, it's a reminder that we are children addressing our Father, our Abba, our Papa. When we pray your name, be hallowed. We're reverencing God and we're reminded that we are creatures addressing our God. 
when we pray your kingdom come, your will be done, we're subjects addressing our king, bowing down to him as such. When we pray, give us today our daily bread, we're coming to God as the one, the only one who provides for our every need. I used this term several weeks ago. We're beneficiaries. We come to God to provide because there are actually are some things for which we cannot provide for ourselves. When we pray, forgive us, we're coming to God as the only one who can uh, forgive us of the insurmountable debt that we've incurred because of our sin. We, we sin by, by, by nature and, and by choice. We do things that we shouldn't. We th- have things that we should do to, in obedience to God's commands that we don't do because we don't want to do them. And so I come to God who forgives me in the gospel and offers me freedom from this debt and this guilt of my sin. And on top of that, we get eternal life. And lastly, as Pastor Nick unpacked last week, we pray, when we pray, lead us, deliver us. We're coming to God, admitting that we need to be led, that God is a shepherd, that we are sheep. Our lives are messy and it overflows into how he leads us. We are praying that we're confessing, actually, our struggles with sin and, and pleading with him to deliver us from his grasp. We're asking God to save us from hands, as the prophet says, that are oftentimes too strong for us to even deliver ourselves. And so today we're going to finish this series. And I don't know if you've been paying attention, but each week we have actually that each week as we've been reciting the Lord's Prayer, I've added a line that likely, you know, by heart, but you perhaps don't even see in your Bibles. Now, I would tell you, Actually, those words are in your Bible. It's actually in the footnotes. Uh, I'm using the ESV, and here's what my ESV uh, provides for me in the footnotes. It says, or the evil one. So as uh, the Lord is commenting on verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's footnote number five. It says, or the evil one. So we could replace evil with evil one. But here's, here's what it adds, and this is what I want you to pay attention to. Some manuscripts add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So what I want to tell you is this actually is the traditional form of prayer. Uh, Why is it that you and I, some of us who didn't even grow up going to church or grow up, um, you know, in any kind of religious background, how is it that we know the Lord's Prayer? And, and in particular, how we might even know this last line, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Because it's the traditional form of the Lord's Prayer. In fact, it's been the tradition of the church to recite these words ever since about the second century. It's a long time. What I want to call your attention to really is, uh, is this, 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 word in the footnote that says some late manuscripts. That's the key term for us for a couple minutes of of my sermon. And so what I'm telling you is what this means is that while some of the manuscripts of the New Testament have this version of the Lord's Prayer, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, most don't. And because of that, scholars are pretty much in agreement that this is not a part of the original Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught. What am I saying? Jesus didn't say that. He didn't teach his disciples to say these words that we tack on at the end of the Lord's Prayer as he was teaching them uh, how to pray. Now, probably some of y'all freaking out already. It's like, well, I mean, what does that mean? I mean, should we even be saying that? Isn't there a verse in Revelation that said I shouldn't be adding or taking away anything from the Bible? And I mean, I might might be like smote by God if if I do that. Uh, Let me clarify that. Uh, in fact, what I want to do this morning is take a look at this ending, and what I want to do is think about it in, in two ways. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. I want to take that phrase and think about it. Firstly, what does it mean biblically? That here's a, a, a phrase, a key phrase that most of us know that we think is in the Bible that's really not there. What does it mean for me biblically? And then what does it mean practically? And in the midst of that, what I'm hoping to teach you is a bit about how this phrase came about, why we say it even today, and what it means about the reliability of your Bible. And uh, as we we conclude, a little bit about uh, what it means for us as we pray. So firstly, what does this mean biblically? Let me point out some things that I think is key for all of us to understand. Firstly, we don't have the original New New Testament documents. We only have copies of the New Testament documents that we call 
manuscripts. And so the, the books and the letters of the Bible are uh, written by uh, the gospel writers and, and Paul and Peter and others were written on papyrus. And all of these eventually rotted and decomposed. I think about the way that we get paper. Our paper comes from, from trees, right? I don't know how that process is, but it's like mushed together. I mean, compressed and, you know, out comes a, a paper somehow. Uh, so papyrus was a, a plant, a water plant found uh, primarily in, in Egypt and it went through a process in the ancient days, and it was like a thick form of paper. It, would use, it was used to write on. It was also used to paint on. And so uh, what happened through the years as uh, not just gospel writing, not just uh, scripture writers, but, I mean, ancient, ancient peoples, they would use these, the papyrus to, to write on and to, and to draw on uh, for art. And the things that they would write obviously would decompose because the, the, the papyrus is, is decomposing. And so through the years, as these, uh, uh, papyrus, these manuscripts started to decompose, professional scribes would write out copies of the letters by hand. And these copies are what we call manuscripts. And I want to show you a slide. This is a photo of the oldest manuscript. It's called P52 or Papyrus 52. It's a fragment from, from John's Gospel, specifically John 18. It's dated by scholars at 125 AD. So this, I mean, this is an old document, still in existence today, I think, in a museum in Egypt. So John's Gospel was written in the 80s and 90s. So this is this this fragment, this picture of this fragment is only about 30 years after the original one, original letter that John wrote was written. So what we are looking at a picture of might be a first or second copy of the original. I mean, that's pretty cool that that it's preserved so long. And so that's what a manuscript is. A manuscript is a copy of the original handwritten letters and books of the New Testament. So why do we need manuscripts? Because the originals would have decomposed. Uh, papyrus doesn't last forever. Like our paper, you know, it can rot and decompose. And this was the method of preserving books and letters, not just of the Bible, but, you know, just other books uh, for 1400 years until the printing press was invented. So fast forward, 1400 years, uh, the New Testament was copied by hand. Um, and have you ever, I mean, think about it. Have you ever copied anything out by hand? Remember grade school, how your teacher taught you to learn to write and you had to, you know, just the, the, those pieces of paper with the, the, uh, the, the lines on it equal spaced out and you had to form your letters and all of that. I mean, that stuff is hard as you're learning to do it. Actually, it's hard even if you're a professional, uh, we make mistakes. And the scribes who were the professional handwriters during that day were no different. Uh, numerous mistakes were made in the process of copying out books and letters of the Bible. And actually, some of them were intentional alterations. So if I had you go home today as an exercise and try writing out all of Matthew 6 to include the, the lines that we have of the Lord's Prayer I would tell you that you're going to make mistakes. Uh, you won't get it perfect. Uh, you'll spell a word wrong. You'll miss a letter. You might even leave out a whole word. I think it was easy. it's easy now to make mistakes. And people are, you know, people in the ancient days were no different. Uh, they made accidental mistakes, but actually sometimes they made deliberate mistakes. Uh, they, they put in or left out things deliberately. Scribes often tried to fix things that they thought were mistakes. And so out of the 5,000 Greek manuscripts that we still have today of the New Testament letters and books, none of them are exactly the same. And why is that? Because it's inevitable there's going to be mistakes. They're copying this stuff out by hand. And so the question for us is, should we be worried by that comment or not? That that we've got 5,000 Greek manuscripts of the the original letters and books of the New Testament and that all of them have mistakes. Should we be worried about that? And of course, I mean, I got to be honest, some scholars say yes. In fact, there's this whole profession uh, in, in the Christian uh, world, in, in religion, called textual criticism, where experts determine if a text is accurate and they scrutinize how much it's been altered. 
So let me give you some, some stats that come from this area of textual criticism. There's a few facts. Firstly, there are approximately 138,000 words in the New Testament. All right. I didn't count the New Testament. I didn't do that. I was out of town this week. I didn't sit down and count that. I've got Bible software and I've got books that tell me this is how many words there are in the New Testament. 138,000. There's, it's estimated that there are 200,000 to 400,000 variants. What's a variant? I'm going to tell you in a second. It's basically a place where a, a difference, there's a difference in the manuscripts. A, a, perhaps a mistake has been made. And the reason why we have so many variants is because we have a lot of manuscripts. Let me illustrate. So uh, I'll look at the screen. I, I, I wrote this in my own handwriting. And as you can tell, my handwriting sucks. All right. So can y'all read that? What, what does it say? All right. So it's, it says, happy birthday to you. Now, suppose I, I, I got bad handwriting. So uh, here's a little story. So I, I write Nick, Pastor Nick, and I write uh, handwritten note cards to those of you that, that visit our church. Perhaps you have already gotten one from us. And if you've gotten one from us, you know that both Nick and I write pretty poorly. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Alicia and KP, um, Perry, uh, had gotten a, a nice welcome note from us from the transit and Alicia, uh, God bless her soul, actually brought the note back to my wife and, uh, and said, um, this is pretty cool that Pastor Jeff, uh, took the time to write me a note. Uh, could you translate and tell me what this is? So, uh, there it goes. You can see my handwriting has been bad, especially since now that I do everything on computer, but yours are probably bad too. All right. So back to my example. Happy birthday to you. Suppose I hired uh, six professional scribes, and we're going to create manuscripts from this four-letter sentence that I have, happy birthday to you, and have them write it out. And so what you're seeing here are uh, six derivations of what that, could look, what that could look like. And, you know, of, cor of course, uh, somebody might get it all right. Some, some of them, because my handwriting is so poor, might mistake some letters. Some of them, I know what happy birthday to you is, and you're going to write, write it out. Some of them might be uh, used to writing on Twitter and, you know, how we abbreviate things to get the, the 140 characters in there and all that. And so that's how uh, simple mistakes and errors and sometimes intentional errors are made. So case in point, this is the same thing that happens um, when it comes to the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. These 5,000 manuscripts have variants mostly composed of misspelling errors where a letter or two were changed. And that's the variant. Same thing that you see in my happy birthday example. Every one of these errors here, the, the, the six so-called you know manuscripts that I created from the, the scribes I hired, and each one made a mistake or two. And we've got uh, four words, uh, six manuscripts, and, and 10 variants, 10 places where the, the words differ from what I originally wrote. So let me give you uh, some more facts here. There's four types of variants. Uh, the first type is spelling differences and nonsense differences. So just like my happy birthday example, you can get one letter wrong and that's a variant. Let me give you a, another example. First Thessalonians uh, 2.7 says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. This uh, particular scripture in the Bible has a footnote uh, indicating that some manuscripts uh, translate this differently. The footnote comes not at the end of the particular verse. It comes on the word gentle. So would you believe that uh, several of the manuscripts uh, differ in terms of what that word actually is in the original uh, in the original letter? And so most of our newer translations translate it as the word gentle, as I just quoted in the ESV. We were gentle among you. That's the, the Greek word nepeoi. Some manuscripts translate that little children. We were little children among you. Epeoi. You notice it's just the difference of one Greek letter added on the, uh, added at the beginning. You might not believe this, but there are actually some manuscripts, not quite a lot, but some that say that translate this word as we were horses among you. Hippoi, uh, kind of a similar Greek word, but uh, just uh, three letters differently. That's what happens in translation. So when you see the foot a footnote in your Bible, 
particularly talking about manuscripts. Here's what the editors are saying. They're saying some manuscripts have this, others have this. We're going with this, but this, you know, the others are a possibility as well. And, and I would just tell you, well over 50% of variants are simple spelling mistakes or they're just nonsense ones like, like the third uh, option here that said we were horses among you. So uh, first type of variant, spelling differences and nonsense differences. The second type of variant, minor differences that don't affect translation or that involve synonyms. An example of this would be uh, the, the, the scribes writing Christos, Christ versus uh, uh, Jesus Christ. And that, that doesn't change the meaning. Uh, Christos means Jesus is, is this, and, and Christ is, is his position, it's Messiah. It's, it's, it means the same thing. Sometimes it's word order that's changed. Uh, word order in English is important. Think about this. If I say Jeff loves God, that's not the same thing as saying Jeff, uh, God loves Jeff. Those are two different, different things theologically, uh, it, uh, as we, as they would play out. But in Greek, you can actually swap words around because how they function in a sentence is dependent upon the endings and not necessarily the word order. So third type of variant are differences that are meaningful, but likely. This is the horse's example. And this means that it, if it's true, if it's true that that word is horses versus gentle, it actually is going to change the verse significantly. And then the last one would be differences that are meaningful and possible. And this simply means it changes the meaning of the verse like little children, little children or, or gentle. Uh, it, it could be either. Uh, this fourth category is the one to pay attention to, though, uh, because it's less than one percent of all the variants. All right. So that was a lot. It's kind of con- uh, that was kind of complex. But here's what this all boils down to. When you hear that there are 200,000 to 400,000 variants in the, the, the 5,000 or so manuscripts that we have of the original New Testament text, the truth is only about 4,000 of those are even important variants. Places where uh, the, the words or a text uh, has some change to it. Does that make sense? I hope it does. All right, so here's why this is important. The reason why we have so many variants is because we have so many manuscripts. And I, I can't overemphasize the importance of that. To that. The fact that we have a lot of manuscripts is very important to us in terms of how we know that our Bible can be reliable. So I want to show you on the screen um, a, a list of some of the most famous texts of the ancient world around the time of the New Testament. You should be familiar with, with, with some of these. I've got just uh, just a few. First is, is Tacitus. Tacitus wrote the Annals. He was a Roman historian, a senator in Rome, and he wrote the history of Rome. Coincidentally, uh, Tacitus is one of the ones that refers to in his writings in, in the history. Uh, his, uh, he refers to the, the, the crucifixion, the execution of Jesus by Pontius Pilate. So that's a secular writer that for which we can verify what the Bible says. Um, uh, Herodotus, Herodotus wrote the history. He's a fifth century Greek historian. Uh, we've got Julius Caesar wrote the Gallic Wars, which, uh, basically is, is, uh, the, the military campaigns that, that, that Rome fought against the, the Gallic tribes. And then one of the most known books ever written, uh, Homer's Iliad. Remember Brad, Brad Pitt in the movie Troy? Of course, that's the, that's the, the 10 year siege of Troy by a coalition of, of Greek states. That's, uh, very popular and well-known article. So the way to read this uh, read this slide is you got the dates when each of these books were written, the oldest manuscript, uh, you see that written, written there, and the number in parentheses, say, for example, for Tacitus and his, his annals, 800 years is the, the number of years, the gap between when the first manuscript was, was copied and the last manuscript was copied. And then you see there's only three manuscripts ever created of the annals by Tacitus. In regards to Herodotus, it's uh, the oldest manuscripts from first century. There's a 500 gap between the first and the last. There's 75 manuscripts uh, with Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. Ninth century is uh, the oldest manuscript. It's a thousand years between the first and the last uh, manuscript that's written. And there's 10 of those. 
And then Homer's uh, Iliad, 4th century is the oldest manuscript that we have, 4th century B.C., 400-year gap between the first manuscript and the last, and there's 643 um, manuscripts. Now, I think the key here is the, the way to read this slide. The smaller the gap between the first and the last manuscript, the better or potentially the, the less amount of errors. And I think it would be right to say if, if a scholar was explaining this, they would say all these ancient works seem really good. They're, they're reliable. We can believe that they were actually written and what they what they've been written about is actually true because of the number of manuscripts and you know whatever the gap is. And so all these ancient works seem pretty good until you compare it to the one example from the ancient world that beats out all of them to include it to include Homer's Iliad. What is it? It's New Testament. There's there's five thousand plus manuscripts and the gap between when the first manuscript was written and the last is only 30 years. And if you would add, uh, you look at, at Paul's writings, in particular, like John's writings, John is the last gospel and Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Um, there, there's a hundred year gap from when the last first manuscript was written and the last was written. And so the evidence for the New Testament compared to other ancient document documents is, is mind-blowing in terms of sheer number of manuscripts that we have and in terms of the gap when the first manuscript was created from those original letters and books and when the last one was, was written. In fact, the gap is so small there that there hadn't been hundreds of years for lots of errors to creep in. So obviously, the shorter the gap, the smaller the chance for error. Because of this, I told you earlier that there's some scholars that, that say um, to have all, you know, the the fact that we have errors in any of the manuscripts is a big deal. There's also scholars that that actually counter that and tell us that because we have a lot of manuscripts, um, the the fact that we have errors is insignificant. Daniel Wallace quotes this. He um, he's a, a scholar at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he says if we have approximately two hundred thousand to four hundred thousand variants among the Greek manuscripts. I'm just shocked that there are so few. What would the potential number be? Tens of millions, he says. For uh, part of the reason we have so many variants is because we have so many manuscripts. And because we've got so many manuscripts, it helps us immensely in getting back to the original. And so go back to the happy birthday example. Remember remember this? I mean, there's, there's four words. I, I solicited, I hired... Uh, six professional scribes, and they all came up with their own, you know, their own copy of my original letter, writing out happy birthday to you. And in those six manuscripts, they actually came up with 10 different variants, right? They made 10 kind of, kind of mistakes in what they wrote. The number of words hasn't changed, but the number of variants increases uh, with the number of manuscripts. And I think, I mean, that's, that's a simplistic example, but I think it's the same thing with the Bible. And so this scholar says, the more manuscripts you add, the more variants you'll find. Why? Because these were written by hand. There's going to, I mean, there's going to be spelling mistakes. There's going to be missed words. The, the, the more manuscripts to have, you have, the more variants you're going to find. And so he's saying there should really be millions of variants in the Bible. In the New Testament. So the fact that there's only 200,000 to 400,000 is simply amazing. And even among, you know, the two to 400,000, only 4,000 are possible and meaningful. Remember the four types of, of variants that I talked about a couple slides ago? And, and, and so and out of all these, scholars would then analyze them. And as I said before, where the variant is significant, they're going to make a decision about it. What they're going to do, uh, what, you know, they're going to make a decision about what they're going to put in their Bible, put in our Bibles. And the ones that have any debate, they're going to footnote it for you. And, and perhaps and maybe you've paid attention to this. Hopefully now you will. You'll see all those footnotes in your Bible uh, of, of where there's variance in the manuscript. The, the scholars aren't trying and Bible translators aren't trying to keep this a secret. They're trying to be completely transparent as to where the variance might be in your Bibles. Uh, we know where those are. And so. All that I know was a, I know that was a lot. Let me let me boil this down to this. What does this mean biblically for us? I think it means this. When it comes to the Lord's Prayer, you, you see the words that have traditionally learned uh, that we've traditionally learned and recited, not there, but but footnoted. I, it means, firstly, Jesus didn't teach those. And we got to admit that. 
They were added later on by a scribe as he was copying out Matthew's gospel and perhaps thought, well, wait, this is missing the words I'm familiar with. And some scribes put them in there. And so let's ask ourselves, does that mean that we can't trust the Bible? I mean, I think it's no. I think it means we can trust the Bible because we have so many manuscripts. We can actually go back and find kind of with fidelity what the original words were. And in this case, they weren't original. Jesus didn't teach this, this, this last line. And so here's what experts think happened with this. I know I keep repeating myself, but I just want to make this, make it clear so you know, um, you know, this is what scholars uh, have d- discerned about the Bible. You can trust the Bible. So firstly, Jesus did not teach this last line. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Jesus didn't teach it. It was likely added second century. It was probably added because there were early church, uh, because the, the early church was using the Lord's Prayer as part of their worship. It was a part of their liturgy, liturgy just like it sometimes is a part of ours. But what they found, and, and scholars, I'm using um, the, the, the words of scholars to, to clarify this. What they found is they, as they used it in public worship, that to end the prayer, uh, the Lord's Prayer, saying, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, it seemed kind of abrupt to end the prayer like that. So what did they do? They added the doxology. What's a doxology? It's, it's like a liturgical formula of, of praise to God. We, we sing the doxology sometimes. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's the doxology, right? And so doxologies vary. Sometimes it was it was the words that we have read in Scripture. Romans eleven thirty six was one of the ones that was popular. For from him and through him uh, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Others use the benediction from 1 Corinthians uh, 13, 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Okay, those are two doxologies or benedictions that were, were common in the early church that we still use even today. Okay, so my point being, they did much the very same thing that we do in worship. Um, you know, you ever notice at the end of one of our worship sets or sometimes in between that Joseph or Abigail uh, at the end of a song will, will, will recite a scripture or will lead us in a, a, a corporate uh, confession uh, of words that sound like praise to God uh, or a, a corporate confession or as Pastor Nick does at the at the end of our service he gives a benediction to close our service and so they the ancient church just like we now take a psalm or even liturgical readings to inspire the people of God I think that's what happened here uh, they were wrapping up the prayer with a little I mean just a little more warmly than just saying deliver us from evil not that those are bad words here's what here's what all this boils down to uh, the most common summary uh, summary doxology was from, was from 1 Corinthians 29, 10 through 11. At, several weeks ago, during the Lord's Prayer, we actually read this verse, and so hopefully it stuck out to you then. Here's what 1 Chronicles 29 says. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that's in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. And so if you're looking up at the screen at these at these words, note the, the words in bold. Uh, if you take the word kingdom from verse 11, that bottom line there, I mean, I mean what do you have? I, mean, this, I think this is what they did. In fact, this is what scholars say they did. They took the summary of David's prayer here in in. First Chronicles 29, and of course, this is David daddy, uh, uh, praying as he's turning over the kingdom and all the, the things that the that Israel has amassed for his son Solomon to then go and, and build the temple after, after David's died. And so they've taken David's summary prayer and they've used it to conclude the prayer Jesus taught in the worship. And then one day, perhaps, a scribe is writing out a new copy of Matthew's gospel. He gets to this line. Yours is the, actually, he gets to this line and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he, 
he notes that somehow the doxology that he knew and recited in worship was missing. So what does he do? He adds it. I mean, it's, it sounds kind of simplistic, but that's very likely what happened. Uh, he adds it, maybe assuming it was a mistake. I mean, it shouldn't have been left out because he, he's always known it. A few other manuscripts uh, would have been copied from this one, uh, but the vast majority of those 5,000 manuscripts of the books and letters of the New Testament actually don't have this line. And so uh, let me summarize that one more time. What does this mean biblically? I think for me, it increases my trust in the Bible. Hopefully it does for you too. We have so many manuscripts, so many copies of the 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 original documents of the Bible. We don't have the original uh, uh, papyrus anymore. We have so many copies, so many manuscripts of, of those originals of the Bible. And so we can go back and really be certain that we have in our Bible, what we have in our Bibles is exactly what uh, the gospel writer Matthew and, the, you know, Dr. Luke and, and gospel writer John and, and Peter through John Mark and Paul and all the others. Uh, said or wrote, and it ultimately, ultimately means we can trust what the Bible says. All right, so that's what it means biblically. Uh, very quickly, let me end with uh, what it means practically. And specifically, what does this mean for our prayer lives? As we are praying, uh, you know, not necessarily the words that Jesus lays out here, but definitely in the model of prayer that he gives us. Let me give you three things. Firstly, I don't think it should impact how we pray. Uh, we've been saying throughout this series, Jesus never gave us this prayer to recite verbatim. It's, it's more of a model. He's given us categories or themes of things that we should pray for. Uh, this is, the, I think this is an example or a template that Jesus is giving us about how to pray. Jesus is teaching us. He's, uh, you know, it's, it's as if he's standing with us, like he is his disciples here 2000 years ago. And he's saying, you know, I want you to pray about my name. I want you to, to, to worship me because I, I am, am God and I'm uh, worthy to be worshipped. I want you to pray about my kingdom and my will that you give me control and allow me to reign and rule over your hearts. I want you to pray about basic necessities that, that you need. I want you to pray about your sins that keep you from relating to me. I want you to, to, to pray about your struggles with sin. I think he's giving us categories of things to pray about, not the exact words. So the fact that this last line for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It, it's not original to Jesus. Actually shouldn't affect us, at least in how we pray. Uh, so here's the second thing. It's that while Jesus didn't teach this line, I, it, it definitely is still true. Um, these words are still in the Bible. They're, they're David's words. They're, they're not Jesus' words. And because it's in the Bible, uh, they're still inspired by the same Holy Spirit, uh, such that it makes it God's word to us. It, it's a scriptural idea and a true thought that God is the kingdom and the power and the glory that, that, that this, uh, this majestic, uh, praise and glory that we give to God, it, it all belongs to him. J.I. Packer in his book on the Lord's Prayer says, kingdom and power refer to a single thought. That thought is omnipotent control. And I think what Jesus is bringing us back to, um, not necessarily Jesus, but, but what this doxology added to the end of the Lord's Prayer is bringing us back to is really what Jesus brought out at the very beginning. When we say your kingdom come, your will be done, we're reminded that that uh, there, there's a kingdom that we're being invited into and Jesus is the king and he deserves all the glory. He has all the power uh, and uh, we should render that to him as his subject. So the psalmist says, one uh, Psalm 103.19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven, in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. And so that's the kingdom and the power. And this idea of glory means weight. It, it references the sum of all that God is. And so when we, when we pray glory, that, that God gets the glory, here's what we're doing. We're ascribing that God, our maker and redeemer, is always uh, and only, he, that he will be glorious in all that he does, especially, especially in his acts of grace towards us. And for that, we can commit our allegiance to him, and for that, we can worship him. All right, so 
Jesus didn't teach that line, but it's definitely still true, and it's a biblical idea. Thirdly, and this is my last, my last point, there's, there's no right or wrong way to pray. And I, I hope those words free you. Did you, did you hear that? There's, there's no right or wrong way for any of us to pray. And again, I'll say this, uh, you know, for the last time in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus didn't give us exact words to pray. If he doesn't suggest a formula. He's not telling us this is the vocabulary that you use. This is the style that you got to use when you pray. And I think for many of us, we've often made prayer just that. We often don't feel like we should. We often uh, we often feel like we should pray in a certain way that we should say right words, especially when we're in a public setting. In fact, sometimes we don't even want to pray publicly. Why? Because we don't think we're doing it right. And that's not what Jesus is trying to convey here. And so I think these last words here, um, this doxology on the end of the Lord's Prayer that we all learn and perhaps even still say, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. The fact that they actually aren't in the, in the original manuscripts helps us out. Here's how it helps us. It reminds us, it teaches us that prayer is not a formula. It is not, it, it, it's not Jesus didn't write down one plus one equals two. And this is how you pray. And if you don't get that, those actual numbers right in the order with all the annotation, then your prayer doesn't count. That's not what he's doing here. Prayer is not a formula. It's a conversation with a loving father, our Abba, our Papa. And that's why Jesus begins the prayer like that. God, God is not sitting in front of you as you pray and he's taunting you because you didn't get the vocabulary or the style or the tone right. I, I think God is mostly only interested in our heart and, and he's, he wants to have a conversation with us. He's interested, he's interested in you spending more time with him at specific moments, at every moment, sporadically throughout your day, connecting with him as you think about the things, uh, as you think about God and all of his glory, but also think about the things horizontally at that, that you need God's help in. So that's that's the, the the freedom that God has given you in in prayer. And as Paul says in in both First Thessalonians and Ephesians three, that we would pray at all times about all things on all occasions. Uh, and we pray to God about what's going on. We pray about our hearts. We, I mean, prayer is not a formula; it's a conversation. And um, by the way, I mean, I hope you caught this. This prayer also doesn't end with the word "Amen." I mean, did you notice that? So when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, he didn't teach them actually to pray amen at the end. So where in the world do we get that? Uh, of course, there's prayers in the Bible, the scripture in the Bible that use that term. Here's what amen means. It means let it be so. Amen is a Hebrew word that was primarily used in the Old Testament during synagogue worship. And there's various places in scripture that, that end in prayer and we see the word amen used but what amen echoes is from a new testament old testament perspective is that we're accepting what the king has ordered the king has commanded us to do this thinking of of david and the things that we read of him in in the scriptures and and we're saying yes to that when we pray amen at the end of the lord's prayer it's it's kind of the same thing we're saying and and emphatic Yes, what has been said, we agree to and, and we will do. But, all right, so having said that, no, I mean, amen is not really here. It's only the, it's only the traditional reading of the Lord's Prayer that has this amen. In verse 13, there is no amen there. So it, it, I, I want to be very honest with you. What I think this is this is giving us a license to do is to say amen or not to say amen. Honestly, God's not going to penalize you in prayer if you say amen or don't say amen. If this is the model prayer that Jesus gives us, I don't think we need to. Um, I don't think we need to feel pressure uh, that that we don't get our prayer right, even if we don't say in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, of course, we read in Scripture, John fourteen, uh, uh, and other places that Jesus says that we can come to God only through Him. That we. If we ask for anything in his name, that, that God will give it to us. Now, that's not a license to, to ask and then assume we're going to get everything. He's saying that we have access to God through him. And then, um, that's the primary reason that we would pray in Jesus' name. But again, it's, it's, it's not a formula. 
He's, he's giving us an opportunity to, to have a conversation with God. God doesn't want us to coming, coming in prayer saying in Jesus name, as if it's the magic formula that's guaranteeing to, guaranteeing us to get whatever we want. And, and honestly, while we're on that, the Bible doesn't teach us that we have to close our eyes or bow our heads or, or even fold our hands. I remember I was a new Christian. Uh, I was going to a church in, uh, in, uh, Northern, uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Bethel Chapel. Uh, pastor Ray, Ray McCollum was the, the pastor. He's the first person that I ever saw pray with his eyes open. It freaked me out. I was like, what is he doing? I, obviously, I was looking at him pray. I, I should have had my eyes closed too. Uh, but I, I didn't grow up as a Christian. Uh, and I, everybody that I saw pray always closed their eyes. They bowed their head too and they had their, you know, had, had their hands folded. Brother Ray did not do that. And it sort of, uh, made me uncomfortable. Well, guess what, folks? The Bible doesn't say you have to do that. The Bible doesn't say you have to kneel. The Bible doesn't say you have to have this pious, slightly pained expression on your face as if as if prayer is like hurting you. And you know how we do that sometimes? You don't have to say God like God. You can walk down the streets of D.C. with a smile on your face, talking to God. You can drive in your car. You can stand on the metro as crowded as it sometimes is and have a conversation with Jesus at the same time. And if you don't end your prayer in Jesus' name, amen, God is not going to smite you. I, I, I guarantee you that. God does not care about our formulas. I think more than anything, he wants our hearts. He wants us to connect with him as our father, as our Abba, as our Papa. Abba, it's all about your name. It's, it's what God is Allowing us to come to him in prayer. I bend my life to your will. Would you give us what we absolutely need today as we live dependently on you? Would you forgive me of my sins and, and help me to forgive those who have knowingly or perhaps even unknowingly hurt me? Would you help me in my deadly struggle with sin? And I, I think that's that's prayer, folks. I think that's how Jesus is inviting us to pray. That's the model that he is presenting before us. All right. So. I don't know about you, but this, I mean, this study uh, of the Lord's Prayer, just unpacking these lines for the last several weeks has been really helpful. I mean, I sat in a chair at the beginning of this series, uh, I think it was seven, eight weeks ago, and, and I, I, you know, pastor, I confess that I struggle with prayer, prayer, and that absolutely was not a gimmick. I mean, that was a hard thing to admit. In fact, I struggled with myself on, on the inside, deciding if I was actually going to do that. I felt I needed to do it. Um, again, I'm trying to make prayer accessible, that we would know that we're invited to pray. And more than that, that we would ultimately want to pray. We want God to change our hearts and know that we can call him father. But more than that, know that we have open access through Jesus to pray. And so when I admitted that, that was a hard thing because first, I'm your, you know, I'm your pastor. I'm like a professional Christian, right? Uh, oh, by the way, the elders reduced my salary after I confessed that. I'm kidding. <laughs> They didn't. But here's the thing. Perhaps you're like me, struggling with prayer or at least feeling like it, feeling like you don't measure up, feeling like you haven't really connected with God. And so these last couple of months have been special for me. I mean, I, I feel like I have a new rhythm to my devotions. Uh, but mostly, I, I think what I've gained over these last two weeks of, of just talking about prayer uh, is the, the experience that comes with knowing I can, that, that I can come to my Abba Father anytime, in, in the car, in the office, at home in the morning, in my devotions, you know, in, in, in Wegmans, as I'm going about my day, and I can talk to Abba Father, talking to him about whatever comes to my mind, whenever it comes to my mind. And that, I mean, that's, that's my prayer for you, that this would be the beginning of a, a good year for us. Oh, by the way, we're already in March. Uh, uh, that this would be the beginning of a, a great long adventure with prayer for all of us that, that will, I mean, just, will just keep getting better. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, I'm praying that you know the liberty that you have to come to your Papa because you're in union with Jesus. I mean, you're in Christ. And to know that God himself wants to connect with you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, can I tell you, that, that prayer is your entryway into relationship with God. He, he offers the opportunity to connect with him in such an intimate relationship that's been broken because of your sin. That, that God sent Jesus 
so that you can be reconciled back to God. And, and this is what Jesus does. He lives the, the life of perfection that we can't live. He dies our sins on the cross. He rises again from death and he invites us into his relationship with, with God the Father. And now, among other things, we get to relate to God, not because we earn it, not because we deserve it. It's just because of Jesus. We, we have access to our Father God on, on the coattails of Jesus. And, and you don't know what this, if you don't know what this means, we'd love to chat with you as we close. And so let me pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the Lord's Prayer. Thank you that we have access to you through Jesus. Jesus, we, uh, we can only ask you to forgive us our debts. There's no way we can repay you. But as you forgive us of our sins, what we are afforded is just an unhindered access to God the Father, that we can come, that we can actually call him Father, that we know that we're adopted into your family, given access, not as a bald-headed stepchild, but really as um, as a full-fledged member of the family. We can open the refrigerator, get something to eat or drink, and and, and you'll sit down with us and, and, and dine as well. God, thank you that you um, have invited us into your kingdom. Uh, ultimately, Lord, you want to not reign over just the cosmos. You want to reign over our hearts. And even as we pray, God, we pray that you would help us to continue to submit to you, that we would bow our will to yours. And God, that you would give us what we need, not necessarily what we want, but that what we need. Uh, help us in these uh, future days as we uh, continue to learn how to pray, Lord, uh, that we would um, be comfortable engaging with you, that we would know that, again, because of Jesus, we have access, but uh, that we would be comfortable giving you the cares of, of, our, of our lives. And, uh, and Father, continue to bend our hearts to yours. Ultimately, prayer is a heart, our heart issue. We need our hearts to be changed, uh, even to know that we can come to you uh, with our deepest cares, our greatest wants and needs, and, and, and mostly our sins. And so forgive us, heal us, um, change our hearts that we might want to come to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.